This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Pete Childs, CFO of Workfront, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 402. Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Diane Moorfield, CFO of Cyrus One, a fast-growing IT infrastructure firm developing data centers around the world today. Diane's finance resume is extensive. Cyrus One is her third tour of duty as a CFO. Before she opened her CFO chapter, she was a senior vice president of investor relations for equity office properties, and she spent a decade as a vice president at Barclays, where she admits the CFO office was not yet on her radar. Our interview begins after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are, a majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Link data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. Hello, we're speaking to Diane Moorfield, CFO of Cyrus One. Diane, welcome. Thank you, Jack. It's great to be here. It's great to have you with us, Diane. As always, we like to begin by asking our guests to look back. 
and share with us some of those milestones, career milestones along the way that you feel help prepare you for a CFO role? What comes to mind? Certainly. I think one of the things that differentiates me is that I have a very broad background in accounting, finance, capital markets, and operations in my past. And I think those all prepared me to become an effective CFO. I'd say one of my first milestones was moving from public accounting. I'm a CPA and had majored in accounting and moved over to be a commercial real estate banker with Barclays Bank early in my career. And that transitioned me from pure accounting to also finance and capital markets. I think a second significant milestone on my journey was I was given the opportunity to be the Senior Vice President of Investor Relations for Equity Office pre-IPO, and then once it was a public company, and at the time it was one of the largest publicly traded real estate investment trusts. So getting into the IR role really expanded my knowledge of being on the front line of public companies and speaking with equity analysts and, and the investors in our stock. Several years after that, I was given the opportunity at the same company, Equity Office, to run one of its largest regions and had full P&L responsibility. So all of these varying career experiences is what led me to ultimately become a CFO. Now, we, we want to learn about uh, Cyrus One and uh, its offerings, but I, I want to see if we could first circle back with you on some of uh, the career uh, chapters you just mentioned quickly, because I think it's worth mentioning that, well, unlike many CFO resumes, these are not uh, cursory chapters. I, I mean, after three years as an auditor with Arthur Anderson, you joined Barclays, where you became a vice president and built your career over 10 years. Am I correct about that? Uh, and and uh, can we touch on that? Sure, absolutely. That's correct. I mean, when you're a vice president at Barclays, you may not have been thinking, okay, I'm on the path to become a CFO. No, I would say at that time, that was not really on my radar to become a CFO. Yes, but uh, clearly wonderful experience for any finance leader. Seldom uh, do we see this depth of experience, probably. Same with uh, investor relations, again, not a short stretch of time. You were a senior vice president, top investor relations person for equity office properties. You had a ringside seat right alongside uh, the finance leader for, for a number of years. Uh, the day you step into the CFO office, there's little doubt you know what the up and up is. Same time, I want to uh, learn more about uh, investor relations, tour of duty. Um, we see it. It's not rare. But at the same time, uh, somebody with your experience would love to hear how you think that experience informs your CFO leadership. Again, as I mentioned at the beginning of our interview, I do think I have a unique and broad background um, that may not be typical for, uh, you know, a public company CFO. I would say investor relations is a critical stopping point for public company CFOs if you can get that experience. Because the CEO, the CFO, and the head of IR are the three faces and voices of any public company. So getting 
that experience in investor relations prior to becoming CFO was a significant advantage. But my 10 years in, in banking, particularly real estate banking, since in the corporate side I've always been with publicly traded real estate companies, I lent to REITs and, and private real estate companies. So I got exposed to so many different financings and capital market products with a variety of real estate companies. Again, that helped in my background when I became a CFO and had to, you know, oversee all the financing and capital raising for the companies that I've been CFO of, and this is my, my third CFO position. So all of those things combined, and finally the P&L experience was amazing. To run a division that was, quite frankly, the size of some small REITs, um, and have full responsibility for the people and the budgets and the the actual P&L results, again, I think just helped round out my background and make me a stronger CFO. Okay. We're going we're gonna to leave the past for, for now. We'll, we'll probably come back uh, during the mentoring round <laughs> where I'm sure so much of uh, the experience uh, you shared with us so far has offered you some insights uh, for up-and-coming uh, executives. We want to learn about Cyrus One. Tell us a, a little bit about the company and its offerings and why it's competitive in the marketplace today. Yes, Cyrus One is one of the largest publicly traded data center developer, developers and operators in the U.S., and we are expanding internationally. So what Cyrus One does is help the large cloud companies in Fortune 1000 in housing their data center infrastructure and leasing from third parties such as ourselves. We have significant growth. We have been public since 2013, and our CAGR growth in all of our major key financial metrics, whether it's revenue, EBITDA, or, or bottom-line earnings, have been growing 25% year over year. We counted 1,000 customers as our customer base, including 200 of the Fortune 1000 and all of the top top cloud companies. So if you think of what's happening, this global expansion and really explosion of data, data roughly doubles every 18 months globally, just the level of data that is all stored on servers and that resides in data centers around the country and throughout the globe. And that's obviously supporting our mobile phones, IoT, artificial intelligence, and just everything that is going on in the data and cloud computing revolution. So you join this fast-growing data center developer that's busy expanding overseas, every corner of the world, no doubt. You step into the CFO role. What is the type of job you want to create for yourself? Yeah, that's a really great question, Jack. You know, Cyrus One being public, when I was interviewing for the CFO role, I, did, I was able to do a significant amount of research on the company with all its public filings as well as just knowing people throughout the REIT industry. So I had a really good idea of what the position was going to entail and what I felt my vision for the CFO role would be since I've been in very high-growth, high-intensity kinds of roles like this in the past. But one of the things I did before my actual first day is I created a 180-day written plan. I don't know, it was probably at least five or six typed pages. And I sent it in advance of my start date to Gary Wotazek, our CEO. And I think he was 
pretty impressed that I had given that much thought and level of detail before I even stepped my foot in the office the first day. And I think what was interesting is at around the six-month mark, I pulled the plan back out and I reviewed it and what I had accomplished and even sat down with Gary to review it and it was pretty much right on target. So I definitely had a vision for not only where this business was going, but what my role as CFO and as partner to the CEO would be as I started my job, but as I continue in it, which I've now been here about 18 months. Can, can you tell us something about uh, the team? Was it were most of the key executives in place on your team, or, or did you want to uh, modify it in some way? Yes, that that was a little harder before you start because you really haven't met the team that reports to you or know their strengths or weaknesses or where you have gaps. I certainly asked questions of Gary and the other executives I interviewed with and even board members as to what they thought of the overall finance organization and, and you know, where the strengths were and, again, where we may have had um, some gaps. So I firmly believe you have to give it at least about, you know, 90 days to evaluate your direct reports and your overall teams when you first start in a new position because you have to, you know, you have to gather your own thoughts and impressions as well as asking questions of other people that inter interface with the team. So, you know, probably six to nine months into the job as I looked back on it, it, it was very interesting. When I looked at my direct report lineup, <clears throat> I had promoted two leaders, two of the leaders to VPs, which they were definitely functioning at a VP level, so I think they were undertitled and, and quite frankly, at some level underappreciated. I had one very strong VP of FP&A that was doing a great job and no need to change anything there, and he was already at the VP level. And then I replaced one of the key direct report positions uh, with an underperformer and hired someone with a much stronger background and more of a cultural fit for us. Um, subsequently, we've also hired a new chief accounting officer and a new VP of tax. So over the 18-month period, it was a combination of, you know, some of the people in place were great and no need to make changes. Others deserved a promotion, and a couple had to be traded out with, you know, stronger athletes, if you will. Now, this CFO appointment is significant because – and I want to point out that you were you had a number of other CFO tours of duty, but here we see you sort of changing industries. You're, you're moving into the information technology realm, whereas in the past you had been a CFO inside the real estate industry. Yes, absolutely, Jack. So my broader industry is, you know, under the real estate umbrella. However, as you point out, the different product types under real estate are completely different. So Equity Office was an office REIT, and we owned at our height, um, you know, 720 office buildings across the U.S. Uh, so I certainly learned the office industry and became an expert in that. Then I moved to Sam Zell's private equity funds called Equity International, where I was CFO, and we invested in real estate properties and platforms outside the U.S. So it was all international and non-U.S., and that was across all different types of real estate product types. So um, I had to sort of become, you know, somewhat expert in all the various categories, whether it was retail, residential, office, industrial, et cetera. 
Then I moved back into the public world with Strategic Hotels and Resorts as their CFO, and that, of course, was a publicly traded REIT that only owned high-end hotels and resorts. Very, very different model than other types of real estate. It's, you know, as you know, hotels are 24-7. They're never, they never close. The operating intensity is amazing. Um, and they're very, their earnings stream are much more volatile than, you know, real estate with long-term leases. And now, as you point out, the data center space is as much a technology company as it is a real estate company. So this has been a learning curve for me, but just fascinating given this is where the world's going, right? Everything is about technology. And data centers are literally, you know, at the corner of a main and main supporting from a real estate perspective the locations for all of this explosive data and IT and technology infrastructure that resides in data centers. So tell us a, a little more about your world in terms of uh, metrics today. What what are those key metrics that you're you're looking at before your first cup of coffee, perhaps? Yeah. So I think there's probably what I would say, you know, three or four are the most key. Our number one financial metric that we track and are constantly focused on is our development yield. We are primarily a ground-up developer of data centers, so we are always focusing on our build costs in order to continue to achieve the low to mid-teen unlevered development yields that we have consistently been able to achieve since the company went public. Um, and, and that is a, a huge focus for all of us in finance, in our construction and design area, and uh, with our third-party vendors. On the operating side, we focus very much on EBITDA margins. So we are always working to create a more efficient operating model to get better margins as we continue to scale and um, you know, run the business. So our current EBITDA margins are in the 55% range, but we're looking to enhance those margins over time, again, particularly with scale. And then on the balance sheet side, we manage our leverage very diligently and conservatively to the sort of five times net debt to last quarter annualized EBITDA range because we are on track to become investment grade. And given we are in a capital-intensive business, it's critical to become investment grade and have a more attractive weighted average cost of capital. So those are sort of the three categories of metrics, you know, and, and financial criteria that we're constantly, as you say, thinking of from the time you get up and get, have your first cup of coffee and then come into the office. We're asking uh, finance leaders increasingly how they're they're looking at the are they looking at the customer experience? Are you looking to measure it more effectively? What would you tell us about your business? Yeah, I would tell you that is that is one of the cultural things here at Cyrus One. In addition to managing, you know, build costs and creating great development yields, we are completely a customer focused company. Again, we have about 1,000 customers in our portfolio, roughly 200 of the Fortune 1,000, and everything is about the customer. Um, some of the metrics we look at as, as a data center, obviously it's critical that there is never downtime. So we have created and designed a redundancy model for our 
for our data centers where there would be effectively zero downtime ever for our customers' critical IT infrastructures and servers that are in our data centers. We also have really increased our interconnection, um, which allows customers in our portfolio to be connected to all the critical carriers and vendors they need to run their IT systems and apps. So that has been a huge push for us, and our interconnection revenue has also grown in that you know 20 to 25% a year as our customers utilize our incredibly interconnected data centers across the country. Um, and how we really measure customer success, though, is the repeat leasing we do with our existing customer base. So while each quarter we're signing leases with new customers, and that's important to our success, roughly 70 to 80% of our leasing that we execute every quarter is done with existing customers. So they're either uh, signing leases in additional data centers that they're not already in or they're expanding in existing centers. But I don't know of a business where 70 to 80% of your revenue growth is coming from your customer base. But I think that speaks volumes to how we are customer-focused and have been incredibly successful in uh, retaining and growing our customer base. Diane, one of the, uh, let's call it our signature questions that uh, we like to ask our CFO guests is for uh, a finance strategic moment where you experienced a moment of strategic insight. I imagine there have been many, uh, but uh, didn't necessarily have to happen at Cyrus One. Uh, but what would you share with us? Yeah, Jack, I gave this one a lot of thought because, you know, having been a CFO at various companies that had various, you know, either challenges or opportunities, you know, sometimes it's hard to pick one moment but or one example, I would say. So the one I am going to give you is not from uh, Cyrus One, but actually in my last CFO role at Strategic Hotels and Resorts, which, again, was a publicly traded hotel REIT. When I joined Strategic Hotels in early 2010, the balance sheet was honestly just a complete mess. We were over 15 times levered. We had almost $400 million of very expensive preferred equity, and we weren't paying the dividends on that preferred stock. All our senior debt uh, was maturing within a 24-month period. I mean, I really walked into quite a balance sheet uh, restructuring. So as we methodically and strategically approached the balance sheet restructuring, um, I had an idea on the, our very, again, expensive preferred equity. We weren't paying the dividend and hadn't for several years. So we came up with a structure to tender uh, for roughly, a, you know, a third of the preferred equity that was outstanding with some of our, um, you know, excess liquidity that we would tender for the, you know, again, up to about $125 million of our preferred at a 15% discount to its par value, and that if we achieved that um, success in that tender, that we promised to bring all of the past due dividends current and start paying quarterly um, the dividends on that preferred equity. So we were told by investment bankers and lawyers when we came up with this with this idea that, you know, they'd never seen it done. It certainly, you know, was all above board and we could, you know, do the tender, but they didn't think we'd be successful. 
um, and they were kind of discouraging about it. But, you know, we went out with it, and we were successful, and it became just, it, it was sort of the final step that really cleaned up our balance sheet and, you know, expanded our free cash flow. And, um, you know, so I guess when someone tells you it's never been done or tries to discourage you, you know, we uh, we still forged ahead, and I would say that was probably one of the most strategic, you know, finance executions that certainly I've done in my CFO tenure. Wow, there's so much I'd like to uh, talk to you about, but I'm going to keep moving forward because I know we only have so much time with you. Um, I, we always share this anecdote, uh, Diane, and I'm sure you've seen this on the Internet where the CFO asks the CEO, what happens if we spend money training our people and they leave? And the CEO responds back, what happens if we don't and they stay? I always think they make the, uh, the CFO out to be the bad guy there in some ways. But when it comes to uh, the organization's workforce, tell us a little bit about, you know, the conversations you might have with the CEO or as you continue to hire. What are your concerns, your mindset for the workforce as a finance leader? Well, luckily, Gary Wojtasek, our CEO, is very much about people. In fact, when he is interviewed and asked a question, what keeps you up at night, he often says, you know, being able to attract, you know, train and retain, you know, quality people. Because at the end of the day, it's people that, you know, run companies. And so we're very, you know, HR-focused and focused on hiring the right talent and training and retaining them. At the end of the day, all of us as employees are free agents, but if you create a culture that's, you know, exciting and people are, you know, getting personal development, and when you're part of just a growing industry like we are, I think it really helps us in attracting and retaining the right talent. Um, for for the fi- various finance organizations, you know, there's five different uh, departments that report up to um, the C- my CFO role, um, you know, I would say it is a tight job market, particularly in accounting. Um, you know, when you have 4% unemployment across the country, and we're based and headquartered here in Dallas, which has tremendous job growth and companies growing in, so there's a, there is a real uh, competition for good talent. But, again, we think we have on our side that we're in one of the most exciting Spaces being in the data center industry, particularly when it pertains to the real estate industry, that hopefully we'll be able to continue to attract great talent. Thought Leader listeners, we're about to enter the mentoring round with with CFO Diane Moorfield. Uh, Diane even allowed me to ask her a few extra bonus mentoring questions. We enter the round after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive 
Innovative Year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. We're going to move to our, our mentoring round where I get to ask you several uh, quick questions. I, I have a feeling I'm going to throw you a couple of extra ones. Your, your background has uh, emboldened me. And, uh, but let's begin with what's exciting you about finance and business right now? You know, the CFO role and, the, and, the, and finance, and I, when I say finance, it's broader finance, right? It's FP&A, it's accounting, it's tax structuring, it's all those things. You know, we're the cog in the wheel to support the whole business, to support raising the capital to build the data centers, to support underwriting, you know, the terms of these lar- large, large cloud leases, the tax structuring required because we're a REIT, all of those things. So we're at the center, and we really feel we're a partner to every, you know, other functional area in the business. And I personally feel as CFO, you have to be a partner to your CEO. You have to have a shared vision, and you have to be able to communicate, you know, honestly, and you're going to debate things and not agree on everything. But it's it's critical to have just a great fit with your CEO as, you know, his, his partner, um, which is one of the reasons, again, that I wrote out my 180-day plan to make sure that the day I walked into this job, I was on track to meet his vision for the business. Um, so I uh, – and then that trickles down that as a leader now, I have to lead and mentor and develop the people that report to me and their teams so that they, too, understand the shared vision and that we're all rowing the same way. If there's one piece of advice that you wish someone had told you, and this goes back uh, before Cyrus won, uh, before you stepped into a CFO office for the first time, what is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you? That's a really interesting one, and I think I'm going to answer that more with my uh, female gender lens. And there's been all sorts of studies and articles written on this. But typically, if the, say the next level position opens up, um, so in this case, they go into the CFO role um, from where I was, if oftentimes <laughs> a man will raise his hand if he thinks, you know, he has seven of the ten things required for that role or eight of the ten things. Typically, a female will feel the opposite, that, oh, if I don't have all 10, I'm not ready for that position. And I do think that's really a gender thing. So I look back even in my earlier career and feel like I probably could have gone for a CFO role earlier than I did with seven of the 10 things, Um, and and you make up that gap pretty quickly. Whereas I think I felt like I had to have everything before I felt, you know, it was my time to be CFO. So my advice would be, particularly to women, but to, you know, any young career person, that if you think you're ready for that next role, even though there's some gap there maybe in experience or, um, you know, some expertise, Raise your hand and take that stretch assignment, and you'll and you'll figure it out. That, that's interesting, and, and at the same time, having uh, taken a cursory look back with you at, at your career, um, 
I, I don't see many gaps. And early in your career, you already had some very uh, solid experience uh, for a CFO role. We didn't mention it before, but you were also a consultant at uh, Deloitte Consulting, which, uh, you know, we're beginning to see increasingly how the skills of a consultant are of value to the CFO role today as finance leaders find themselves trying to work across <laughs> the company with, you know, different functional areas and uh, personalities and collaborate uh, more as a just as a consultant would have to do with their clients. So I, I would say you have this, uh, this collaboration stripe uh, on your sleeve, and we know already you have these communication skills, uh, I would imagine, that have grown out of the investor relations role. But not everybody who steps into the CFO office has these skills as developed as perhaps you did when uh, you swung that door open? Yeah, I think part of, partly it's ingrained in me. Um, and I think you're right. Often, you know, heavy-duty finance people don't have some of the other soft skills because they're so analytical. So they may not have, you know, as strong a communication skills, both oral and written, um, or just communication skills and developing, you know, relationships with peers and people that report to them, et cetera. So I, I, I innately am an extrovert. Um, I'm very, you know, relationship-oriented. I, I joke about this. When I came out of college, there was no such term as networking. I, I would call it I just, you know, got to know people and I kept up with them and, you know, I built relationships and hence have, you know, created a, a very strong network over all the years of my career, but it came more naturally for me. Um, again, I think I attribute part of that to just being a, an extrovert. But I would argue that my uh, communication skills, you know, both written and whatnot are every bit as strong as my financial and analytical skills. So, again, I just think that makes me more well-rounded. And when you're in a public company and in the CFO role and you're on the front line communicating all the time, as I was in my investor relations role as well, I can't stress enough how critical it is to have very strong communication skills. Uh, just to touch on networking for a second with you, were there certain groups, and I, I please mention them if there were, but I, I'm wondering, are there, are there certain finance-oriented groups that you participated in to build relationships, or no, that was not what uh, your approach involved? Oh, no, I've always been parts of different kinds of networking. Um, some I would call, you know, more co-ed. For, for example, NAREIT is a tremendous um, you know, association, and when you work for REITs, you want to be very involved with NAREITs with NAREIT, which is the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust, and clearly that includes all types of executives from the REITs, uh, male and female. Um, I've been involved with certain women's networking groups, you know, very high-level executive women groups, which I have found to be valuable to me. Um, when I was in investor relations, there's an association called NERI, the National Institute of uh, Investor – the National in – Investor Relation Institute. I think it's very important that you get involved with networks and associations that either 
are related to your industry or sometimes, you know, in my case, uh, uh, you know, women's network just to have a additional, you know, sounding boards and, and support as you advance in your career. And then we just, we all create our own, you know, just personal network of people we've worked with in past companies or gone to college with or MBA school with. So I tend to be in formal networks as well as all of the informal networks I've created over the years. You indicated that perhaps you could have made it to the CFO office in a shorter uh, career, earlier in your career. At the same time, I'm struck by how it seems like each move was it was pretty thoughtful, and I'm curious about was there a methodology or a criteria you used when you decided to change? And I would imagine recruiters have called you. I don't know if they were involved. But when you made the decision to move to the next role, uh, can, can you share something about your decision-making process? Yeah, I think the thing I have not touched on at all is, is, is my personal life. So I'm married and have three children, two boys and a girl, and they are now 25, 22, and just on the cusp of turning 20. And my husband was a CFO for decades. So we had a pretty, um, you know, crazy lifestyle. Yeah, that's unusual. That's unusual. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, I couldn't have I couldn't have done it without a super supportive husband um, that supported you know me continuing to pursue my career while he at the same time had a very demanding career and you know we were very serious parents and wanted to be good parents to our three children. So one of the reasons I think I didn't try harder maybe to take a CFO role earlier in my career as my kids were younger, and at some point you have to make choices on how much can you balance. So that's probably, it was probably more the personal side that held me back a bit because the CFO role is way more intense than running investor relations, although the investor relations role was a very uh, demanding job as well. So I think partly it's, it's personal choices you have to make along the road. So... I think that was one of the drivers, and one of the others is, you know, sometimes I would think, you know, was I was I ready to be a CFO yet? But again, you know, my husband supported my career, as did I his, and, you know, somehow we did manage to balance it all, and I think our three kids are, are you know, pretty sober and functional. Hopefully, uh, at least they seem that way. <laughs> Wonderful insight uh, for many people out there as they try to balance these things. Uh, is there is there a personal habit that you have that you believe has contributed to your professional success? Oh yeah, discipline. So I'm one. I'm very high energy, but I'm very disciplined. I have always, you know, gotten into the office early and try and have you know an hour or two before you know you're is filled up with meetings and calls and emails to, you know, really get organized and, and be ready for the day. Um, I've, you know, always had a tremendous work ethic, and to this day, even my kids say, Mom, at this time in your career, shouldn't you not have to work so hard? But, you know, I just believe strongly if you're going to, you know, commit to a position and a company and a, a demanding role, you've got to, you have to show up. I am a huge believer in you have to show up. You can't cut corners. You have to really have a good work ethic and be very disciplined, you know, throughout your day and, and everything you're trying to accomplish. Um, 
the other thing is, I again, it's sort of back to the communication side. I'm I'm very direct, and I would say for most people, they like that because you know I put things on the table, we talk through it. There's no surprises. Some people they'll get a little uncomfortable with directness, but I found for me and in my career, it's just more productive. You get more things done because you're not playing games or beating around the bush. You just you know you you communicate directly and. And if you have to uh, redirect something because it's not going right, you just, you know, you deal with it. And, um, again, back to no surprises. So um, I would say, you know, again, high energy, being disciplined, and, and really being a direct communicator have been some of the personal skills uh, that helped me be successful in my career. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Yeah, I, I love to read, um, and I've over the years read a number of business books. I would say it's interesting. Partly, it depends on on the situation, but the one book I always recommend to anybody, whether they're taking a new job with a new company or they're getting promoted into a new position at an exi- existing company, is called The First Ninety Days. I don't know the author's name, but I've I've read it several times throughout my career as I was taking new roles in order to even just, you know, do a refresher. Um, But the first 90 days, basically, the premise of the book is you you pretty much make or break your um, position in your first 90 days. Because we all know first impressions become lasting ones. But it's way more detailed on that, on the things you should do in your first 90 days to make sure you're successful as a leader, successful building the key relationships with your colleagues and your direct reports, pitfalls to watch for. So, again, I recommend that book highly, particularly people early on in their career that are taking um, new roles. It really, I found that book incredibly valuable. Um, I've also... uh, the five dysfunctions of a team. Um, I read at one point when I had a particularly difficult team as far as my direct reports, a few of them not getting along and not working well together. So I found reading that book and the different personality types that can be on a team and how to manage around that was also a really valuable book at that point that I read. And now, being in the the data center and digital world, the CEO here, Gary, gave me the book, The Big Switch, which anybody related to anything technology should read this book. It's by Nicholas Carr, and it's basically, um, again, called The Big Switch, and it's about rewiring the world from Edison to Google, and it puts it in layman's terms, all that's going on with this cloud and the technology going on, and, um, and in almost any industry you're in, to read that book and really understand it at a more basic level, I, I found very valuable. The Big Switch, Nicholas Carr, yeah. Five Dysfunctions, Patrick Lancioni, of course. And uh, one we haven't heard about before, The First 90 Days, is Michael Watkins. Uh, so wonderful. Yeah. You've never heard? 
You've never heard the first thing you I haven't had it recommended. Let me put it that way. It does sound like a, a <laughs> something I've browsed by before, but it's on our list. So we'll put it on the list now. Yeah, it's outstanding, particularly for young professionals because, again, you know, your first impressions that tend to make or break your success at a new job. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful selection. Our final question, what are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Well, I would put it in two or three categories. Number one is to continue to stay ahead of all the capital that this business requires, given we're such high growth in the capital-intensive industry. So I always, as I bring my direct reports and our team together, say, you know, everything we're doing is to stay ahead of those uh, those capital needs and to have liquidity. I'd say the second category is certainly, again, the, uh, you know, developing people, making sure we have the right people in the right seats. Right now, I feel great about our direct report leaders and, and the teams they're building, so I feel really good about that. But, you know, we always, we always have to be very focused on the people because, again, at the end of the day, people get the work done and, and run the business. Thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you, Jack. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.